Welcome to another episode of The Blokes in Your Ear. Today's guest is Austin Stubbs. Austin is the owner of AFL HB Coaching, where he helps footballers with motor skill acquisition and development. He's extremely passionate about Aussie Rules footy and has a wide range of experience in football clubs, including coaching in the AFLW, tactician and football analyst at Essendon Football Club. Austin has a remarkable story on how his resilience and persistence has enabled him to face major setbacks in life and come out on top. Sit back and enjoy. It's time for the Blokes in Your Ear podcast. All right, Ozzy, thanks for joining us, mate. Um, Glad to have you on. I was just wondering what you've actually been doing for COVID at the minute because it sort of turned everyone's life upside down. Yeah, thanks for having me on, boys. Uh, At the moment, I have been out of a job uh, now for um, from Essendon anyway for about eight weeks and uh, I've been going over a heap of documents uh, that I took over the years and um, and a lot of like different notes a lot of drills and game plans etc just lots of intellectual property and I've pretty much documented it um, to like in a neater format and I've created a massive coaching and resource library for myself to take into my next position wherever else I go in the future. So I've got a really probably uh, more educated now than what I was when I was in the job due to having some time to be able to reflect and read over a heap of stuff that I did learn. Yeah, beautiful, man. So it sounds like you're using the time super uh, productively. Yeah, so- yeah, I have tried to. Yeah, absolutely. So at the minute, um, you're sort of just working on your, is it AFLHP? Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yep. So we've, um, I started a footy coaching business, um, private footy coaching business about, uh, what was it, February 2018. And I wanted to improve my coaching, but I wasn't sure how I was going to do that in a, without um, trying to get into a high-performing environment with my, um, and I wasn't that wasn't possible with my current skill set. So I created my own business so that I could improve my coaching because I felt like I was good enough uh, to be able to coach players at a really good standard at local level, but not quite at that AFL level as of yet. Yep. So I targeted that and I thought a good way to earn some money, make an income, rely for life it while I was at uni and then improve my skill set. And since then, I've taken it out and I've grown it into a heap of different things since. Yeah, beautiful, mate. No, that's awesome. Um, I've watched a few of the videos and it's got some really good skills for people to work on. It's just like a lot of sort of touch variations, kick variations. Uh, you focus a lot on the ball drop. Um, I reckon that's fantastic. Connor actually just uh, let me know then. He's using the AFL HB videos to learn footy so he can play in the future because he's always played um, soccer. So he's actually been using your videos to improve his um, skill set, mate. Yeah, there you go. Oh, that's good. That's exactly what it's there for. The I find the videos that are really that I've just posted recently. Um, so for those that haven't seen it, it's a isolation. Um, it's a bunch of isolation drills that you can do uh, by yourself individually, sometimes in a group of two, and you can use a heap of different types of ball handling drills and skills to improve your ability to uh, get the ball onto your boot or by uh, for a handball as quick as you can. So awesome for someone that's coming from a cross code like Connor uh, to be able to 
kick and, and drop the ball and get the ball positioned in handball to be able to execute that skill um, really quickly and effectively. And that's what those like drills are all there for, just to improve your touch and enhance that. Yeah, absolutely. Because I've sort of found watching a heap of... Um... Because I do a bit of like PE teaching and stuff, and you try and teach young kids how to kick, or even adults that haven't had much to do with footy, and immediately their ball drops quite high. And I try and just tell them that the lower your ball drop, the less room for error. Is that the sort of things that you sort of tell your clients? Yeah, exactly. So I find that when I go to coaching seminars and courses, and a lot of uh, other coaches have different views and opinions about the way you teach kicking, and most people say point of impact is the uh, main point where you should identify um, if, if there's an error there and that will help um, if you can identify if there is a skill error there with the um, point of where the ball meets the foot, that's the part that needs addressing first. But I personally don't agree with that philosophy. I think that if you change the way you drop the ball, your point of impact would be more efficient and more effective. So exactly right. Most people, when they drop the ball, it's from too high and the ball deviates by the time it gets from their, they, when they drop it out of the hand to their boot and that wrecks the point of impact. So why wouldn't you, my question to people is, why would you try and address point of impact um, when you're trying to improve someone's kicking technique when you could address that problem earlier? Yeah. Yeah, I agree, mate. Um, there's a guy, like you'd obviously be all over it, but Levi Casbold in the AFL, he looks like he might have started kicking a footy a bit late in life and he's got a re- really quite high ball drop. And it's almost too, like he can improve it, you know, percentages, but it's he's never going to have an elite, like low ball drop kick. And you wonder if he had of really harped down on that when he was a young kid and had the coaches backing him, um, whether he'd be a much better kick today, which he probably would be. Yeah, it would be interesting to do like some study on him because I don't know when he exactly picked up footy and uh, like what type of coaching he's received because he would have had so much private coaching in his time in the AFL throughout his career about his kicking technique. But generally, when you try to analyse someone's kick and you really break it down and whether you do that biomechanically or just analyse it by video without doing biomechanics on it, everyone's going to have some type of error or vulnerability bit of deficiency with their kick and if you can just address the main problem which is most commonly um, the ball drop then that will improve most people's kicks and the higher the ball drop the more room there is for error so leaning over the footy is um, critical for that short to middle distance kick most of the time yeah absolutely and do you find um another thing i remember jason ackermanis come out when he was in his prime and he sort of said when he was kicking the footy on the run full bowl, instead of just trying to kick it while you're in full stride, he'd try and take two or three steadying steps before he actually delivered. Um, is that something that you sort of talk about as well? or? Yeah, for sure. Whenever you try and do something as fast as you can, it's clearly harder because there's an element of speed, so there's less time to make a decision, less time to be able to execute your skill. And most times at training, you, this is skill acquisition, uh, it's where you analyse your training to see if it simulates the game and what you do in that game. And I would say that most teams and most players don't train kicking when they're at their top speed. So what Ackermanis says there is, is perfect. So like if you are at top speed and you have the ability to be able to break away from your opponent and gain a few metres, if you that means you'll create time to be able to slow down to execute that kick, which is a really good idea because 
when you slow down, when you do things a bit slower, you always generally do them more uh, more effectively and get them right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's just sort of common sense in a way. Yeah, um, some players as well will even try and use their agility to be able to go off the line of what they're, the direction they're running in because they're not very fast. So they'll get the defender to overcommit when they sidestep and then they'll try and steady. But most players will try and kick directly after they run off their line of path before they kick. So that's where same thing applies. Once you come off the line because you're not like really fast, you use agility to break away from the opponent, you need to take a few steadying kicks again to be able to hit that kick. Yeah, sorry, a few steadying steps before you kick. You can't just kick straight away after you step. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Hanan just asked a question. At what point do you stop teaching a set technique and focus on the player's natural ability? So he's got an example here. So with Nadal, he had a helicopter sort of forehand and this yep. was considered for many years throughout his youth career as being wrong. Um, but now you have people teaching it to young kids. And even another example I can think of um, from the top of my head is um, Steve Smith's batting technique. And obviously you're a big cricket fan as well. Like that's not something that you probably would have taught 15 years ago, his technique, but it's working. So what? Um, how does that work in your coaching if you see a natural ability that's a bit different to the sort of handbook? I find that you look at what's really effective. So if that's working a lot of the time and it's he's really efficient and or she and it's um it's yeah it's been executed well uh, and it's a common pattern and a common trend that it's always been executed correctly, then I would say that there is no need to change. I would try and tighten up and technically analyze the vulnerabilities. But if it's working well, then why wouldn't you? And then like why wouldn't you keep um keep using it? Why would you change someone's ability to play the game and execute skill just because it looks bad, but even though it's effective? So yeah. I think like just tweak up those vulnerabilities if they're there and if you have the, the talent of coaching to be able to do it. Um, but otherwise with teaching children and other players that are trying to execute uh, those skills, I think that try and find the simplest way that is the easiest way, one, the easiest way to coach and also the easiest way to learn. So if one, if Steve Smith's batting techniques really hard to learn, you probably don't want to encourage players to try and uh, pull off and execute the same type of skill because it's so hard to learn. But if it's really easy to learn, then yeah, sure. We can always make adjustments and try and coach to that for sure. But it just depends. I think like when it comes to analyzing an athlete's technique, I would always, I would always, uh, just tweak up the vulnerabilities if it's working effectively. And if it's a new player, I think just find the simplest way to ex and the easiest way to execute skill common um, as a common pattern. Yeah, for sure. I think that's great, mate. Like there's no point, like that old saying, if it's not broke, don't fix it. So there's no point of, tw you know, completely changing someone's technique if it is working. Um, yeah, I, and I, I agree with that. I think uh, if it's not broken, though, improve it anyway, but don't fix yep. it. That's yep. probably what I go with. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, so yeah, something could be working better. Yeah, absolutely. So I've touched on your coaching a little bit. We'll come back to that. But I'd like to sort of hear about your upbringing. Like I've been to going to high school, went to high school with you, so I've sort of known you for sort of 10-ish years, maybe 12, 15. Um, but can you just run us through that? Because Bendigo is just a small little 
town in central Victoria. So what, what was it like growing up in Bendigo for you, man? Yeah, so I grew up in Morong which is about 20 minutes outside of Bendigo to the west. And I grew up on a family winery, like family farm. Um, and I wasn't actually, I was really bad at sport growing up. Um, and I just wanted to do it because my school that I went to had about oh, 60 kids when I first got there, 50 kids. And there was only sort of t- 10 or 12 kids in my uh, grade. Um, and... There was a few guys in particular that were Liam Chambers, Zach Turnbull, a few guys that played, uh, they were really talented at sport, Brad Matthews. Yeah. And um, and I found um, I always wanted to compete with them because they were the cool kids, but I was just never a natural and never had that ability. So I found uh, my childhood was always trying to compete with those guys in like my uh, my primary school years. And I played all my junior sport and those guys was like became my, um, my mates and, and they were the guys that knocked around with all the time and um, and it was only a small community so you sort of had to um, make friends with um, who was there you didn't have heaps of options either but uh, it was good because you came really tight from that as well because you always just hung out with each other so um, and we all grew up on farms and, and places like really close by so we'd always hang out all the time and, um, and muck around on the farms and stuff and, and that, like it was an awesome childhood I loved sort of growing up a bit out of town where you had that privacy and you could, you know, muck around and do whatever you want. Yeah, for sure, mate. And yeah, they're all they're all good kids too. Those blokes you speak about. Um, no, we're not really kids anymore. But yeah, with with your um, schooling and stuff, were you much of a academic kid, or was it just sort of sport was your main sort of priority throughout your sort of schooling years? Yeah, so probably. Yeah, I was never academic at all until like later. In high school, um, I never really tried hard at school except for PE. And yeah, muck, yeah. yeah, used to muck around all the time, be the class clown and draw attention, etc. But uh, I never really took seri- uh, school seriously. I even had tutoring and stuff a fair bit as a child and um, for like maths and English and things. But I was really obsessed with, um, with like um, other things than sport as well. Like I had a real passion in... Um, like military um, as a child and, and like military tactics uh, and I loved like building stuff. I was pretty hands-on, um, built like this giant tree house as a kid throughout my childhood on, on the family farm and um, yeah, and then I had sport on the side and that was predominantly cricket as well. It was a bit of soccer and footy but I pl- mainly played cricket uh, yeah. through that childhood, um, yeah, as well. Yeah, no, cricket's a great game as well. Absolutely love it. I sort of liken it to a game of chess. You got like, you know, 10 or 11 fielders out there, bowler, keeper, and you're essentially moving these chess pieces around the field and wanting the batsman to hit it to them on the full. So, yeah, yeah it's super technical. Yeah, I think that was something I found really interesting with cricket was I was never good at it um, in my like first five years playing. Um, I was always, it took me, a whole season in my first year of playing uh, until like the last game, I made three runs and I went, I made a duck every single other game in that first year. Um, yep. And then the other years I was just useless with the bat and the ball. Um, I was always a better bowler, but still wasn't much chop until about under 13s. But I used to be so competitive and determined to uh, try and get better and, and be like as good as my mates and stuff. And, 
Um, I used to just practice all the time and et cetera like that. But I loved cricket and that's probably where I started because I was so so bad at cricket. Like I was just fucking shit out. So I had to, <laughs> like, to be honest, so I had to um, go home and improve and that's where I probably started getting like pretty analytical with it as well. Okay. And, and like that's where I started to mould a bit of a sport um, coaching brain. Yeah, righto. In what way would you sort of go out in the backyard and critique your own technique and sort of ball release? Was that sort of like really just breaking down each step? A uh, little bit. I would always try and uh, when I when I was bowling, I always felt that what what is the purpose to what I'm doing right now when I'm about ten or eleven years old and I was really passionate, want to improve. So I thought, okay, well, currently I'm still shit. I've been shit for years and I've been doing the same thing. So I need to do something different. And my dad used to come out and play with me all the time. So what I used to do was, and my old man gave me this advice, but was to try and aim for different parts of the pitch and just try and hit those markers as many times when I bowl. Yep. Because um, you can always bowl by yourself. So I just got a like, bucket of balls and I just come down and bowl and I just and slowly increase my steps, but I just try and hit the same spot. So I like, top of off. Yorker, middle stump, and then eventually I started like bowling off cutters a bit more. Um, if I could get the ball to swing, which I was never really good at, but I used to try and add that in, and I'd add all these variations. So then I became a harder bowler to face against because I was unpredictable, and that's something that probably one of my first signs of me becoming more analytical and uh, more of a coach was that was one of the first memories I have of it was really trying to improve that. Yeah, righto. That's pretty. That's pretty different than um, as a young kid, you were thinking about sport in such a deep, le- uh, deep way. So, do you think your old man and sort of family encouraged that? Yeah, I'd never really spoke about it to my parents. I think like I always spoke about sports to them, and they clearly knew that I was passionate about it. But um, yeah, that's of my old man encouraged me with it. I don't think that that was um really brought on much by them as much as dad gave me that first insight there i felt like what are these other guys doing and what makes them so good and i wasn't a true believer of natural ability um at the time i thought like i put in so much work why am i just like not getting better these guys must be doing something because i'm doing this much so like how are these guys so good and i just thought there was like a reason for it so that's probably where it started was just me being like you know determined and persistence and um and yeah just eager to get involved and get good yeah that's good mate i remember you in junior sport and stuff and you were one guy that always wore his heart on his sleeve and you know you were weren't the biggest kid or you know the um strongest but you're always sort of at the bottom of the pack and really just putting in those extra efforts um and i think if you had have been a really talented footballer or cricketer maybe you might not have developed that tactical approach to it because it might have come a bit too easy what do you think about that yeah i totally agree like uh i think when when you clearly show that you're vulnerable about something people are more likely to put you down so i clearly cared about cricket and sports so much and um i really cared about what other people thought of me and i got bullied quite a fair bit uh not from the guys that i mentioned earlier they were my mates um but just other guys at school and stuff, especially from like grade four through to about year eight, year nine. And some of it, most of it was about sport and how shit I was. And uh, that that's probably like really where um, that passion drove was 
uh, eventually, like I used to be, I was really soft um, at the start and I was uh, easy to push around and things. And I was would never stood up for myself. I never had much resilience um, to and be able to stand up for myself in the moment. And then eventually it just got to me one day and I just thought like, fuck it, I'm going to do everything I can to uh, get better at this. And this is just going to be like the number one thing in my mind and I'm going to prove all these people wrong. And that's yep. really where like, um, that's where that started in footy. Like I really just wanted to be like a guy that was just hard at it and I just wanted to have the respect of my mates and, and things like that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's beautiful, mate. Well said. So you're obviously developed your sort of coaching and tactician. You're thinking about the game as a kid. How did that um, progress? Actually, first we'll go into. So I played a I played a year of um, footy with Aussie back in. Well, what year would that be? It was under seventeens, twenty twelve. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, we played a year of footy together. That's right. Because I was in year eleven, you would have been year ten probably. Yeah. Um. And yeah, at the time you were actually sort of had a bit of a health scare. Can you talk us through that? Because I think that's important for the listeners. Um, if you do get knocked down with something out of your control, how you can bounce back. So trying to cast your mind back to that year, mate. And what what happened? So I was playing. Uh, I just uh, had my one of my best seasons in cricket, and I come off a season of um of getting smashed in footy in the under fifteens, and really grown up a bit. Like got that was the year, and year nine was where I became a bit more resilient and stood up for myself and things, and then. Come into footy, and I was with all my mates, with like you and Jesse Thorpe, Lockie Bailey, Cal Abraham, Luke Taylor, all these awesome blokes, Brent Smith, and that. And um, and I was like my step up um to under seventeens, and I really felt that um like I was in for a big year just because I was so committed to my footy and and sport at that stage in my life, and like I was pretty happy, like I wasn't getting pushed around as much anymore. And then I had um I had a a rare genetic uh, disease that's one in 50,000 um, people that get it uh, come and hit me. And I got diagnosed in um, May with this disease called Leber's hereditary optic neuropathy. And that is a genetic eyesight disease that only most, only most men can get it, but um, it's the odd case of a female getting it. And it happens in between the ages of about 15 to 30, um, most commonly. And you lose, generally you lose a dramatic amount of eyesight in a short period of time. So um, I I wonder, but I was never diagnosed, if I started seeing some of the symptoms about six months beforehand. But I was still playing cricket and batting and not having any dramas with, with seeing the ball that much. So, But then I really noticed it in footy that year. And that's when it severely impacted, impacted me because I started losing, in, in the space of nine months, I lost 97% of my eyesight. And I was yeah, losing, fuck. I lost half a percent a day for that nine months. So I lost three and a half percent a week. Um, and that was right through that year of 2012 with footy um, after about like round, what it would have been like round four or five. Yeah. As of then, I started losing severe, a severe amount. Yeah. Well, I, I remember that year pretty, pretty clearly because I'd come off my own health scare like the year before, I think it was the year before. Yeah, I was diagnosed with a brain tumour and just sort of got through that. Um, and then, yeah, to hear you you were going through a health scare, which is just, you know, fucked. I remember you, um, like, kicking the ball to your training in the air and, yeah, you could just tell you could not see, like, barely see it. 
Did you end up playing the whole season that year or like yeah. most of the season? Yeah, I played like most games that season. Um, I, the club was a bit worried about um, like my health and me getting hit and they were worried like concussion or something could be um, like have an effect on it. And from yeah. like an insurance point of view, um, yeah, they didn't want me to play. But I felt though that like I was fine. I had a doctor write it off, you know, like – at the time, a doctor thought, this guy's fucked. He's probably going to go completely blind, like let him play footy, you know, what else could go wrong? And uh, Right, yeah, 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 yeah. So he just sort of said, like, if it means that much to him, which clearly it does, like, after my childhood. So um, I just wanted to play with my mates. And Jeff yep. Williamson was the coach at the time. and Jeff was a bloody good operator. And um, and he he was a bit hesitant at first, and then he let me come back and, and play. Um and and played a few games later on, but for a few weeks there, was, I actually wasn't allowed to play. They um they asked me not to, and Jeff yep. was just doing what he was told. So I was a bit frustrated at the time at Jeff, but in hindsight, it wasn't his fault at all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So after that, you started getting your vision back. But what was going through your head when you were sort of at your worst in terms of vision? Like obviously, you would have been scared shitless and. Possibly, did you ever accept that that was going to be your future or did you sort of have, you obviously had a bit of hope in yourself that it was going to turn around? What was that like? Yeah, I got told this um, in my time at, um, at the AFL, but this is something that I was thinking about the whole time, but I never um, I never actually like had the words for it. But I always thought about the process and not the outcome when it came to stress. So yep. the outcome at the time was, Yep, being told I'm probably going to lose all of my eyesight and be like that for the rest of my life. or So I could be stressing about that every day or I could think about a process about how am I going to try and get through this? How am I going to live my life and be happy and do what I want to be able to do um, without this um, being a major um, effect on the rest of my life and my well-being? So um, pretty similar to like my cricket, I had a pretty analytical approach about what I was going to do. and. Each week, so I was losing at three and a half percent of eyesight per week. So, very visual learner as a child, um, kinesthetic, had to do things, and then uh, to to learn. And then I suddenly had to become more auditory um, as a learner. So, I had to find a new way to learn, and that was part of the process. Was like process of learning, process of the way I did things, all had to change. And that's, yeah, that's how tough. I that's tough. Yeah, but it kept my mind off it. It's more like I'm thinking about how can I solve this more than how am I going to, like, not be blind. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's great, so, mate. That's great. And, and then that went through everything. So it wasn't just like, um, it, like for example, it would be how am I, um, I going to play sport? How am I going to um, read in the classroom? Like, whatever I wanted to do. Um, you can be yeah, the same rule applied for everything I thought about from then on, really. Yeah, yeah. So you basically yeah, broke it down into a step-by-step process. Each day was a new day. And you were thinking of ways that you could get around this uh, sort of, well, the eyesight, that was completely out of your control. So I suppose you're saying that you try to focus on the things you could control? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um I think that's really common. Like you hear people all the time say, like, focus on the things you can control, but most people still stress out and freak out anyway. But I used to just think about, okay, what can I, instead of not necessarily what can I control, but 
more what can I do to try and make this more convenient or easier for me to do it, uh, to do something. So I would, um, for example, if I'd be like cutting chicken in the, in the kitchen at night, cooking up dinner, yep. I would, uh, I'd, I'd be really, I became really colorblind because of my eyesight as well. So I didn't just have a blind spot and, um, and the blind spot looked like a fuzzy TV, um, that it, like it's been broken with all the different shades of colours buzzing in the centre of your eyes. So um, I'd like lost most of my central vision. So when I was when I had that and colour blindness, like it, some things when when you lose three and a half percent a week, some things will work for a week and then suddenly it doesn't the next week. So you're always yep. having to come up with a different idea. So when I'm cutting chicken in the kitchen, I if I had a white chopping board with like a pink chicken breast that would be really hard for me to be able to tell the difference of where the chicken breast is. Like, you know, it'd be easier for me to cut off my finger. (laughs) (laughs) I I never did that, but I had to get a a chopping board that was a different color so I could see the chicken breast. So I'd be able to cut it um, as, so it didn't blend in and it wasn't camouflage. So that's another, another example of me just trying to be able to get over the problem, think about the process. Yeah, that's beautiful, mate. Because there'll be a lot of listeners here that, are going through tough times especially now like with the whole covid thing it's out of our control like really we've just got to wait for the government to sort of find a vaccine and for that to get fixed but i don't know i'll be honest the first week or two i was in um isolation i was like this is trash like can't see mates this and that and eventually you've got to pick yourself up and go hang on i've got all the free time in the world now like not employed um until work goes back but what can I do to sort of improve myself in this time? And that sort of sounds like exactly the approach that you sort of had in that time, Matt. Hello? Hello? Sorry, mate. I cut out there. Oh, sorry, mate. All good. All good. You're back. I heard what you said. Um, yep. Yeah. I, I was only 15 years old, so I probably, as much as I had these approaches... Some of it wasn't, um, it was just what I did. Like I, I didn't have, um, like I wasn't exactly thinking, uh, these certain things at the time I was more just, um, just getting on with my life. And now in hindsight and reflection, that's what I did. Like I did just get on with it and I did try and and solve the problem. But yeah, I would say that I've taken the same approach through COVID as well as that you just got to get on with a problem like it's always going to be there if you don't get off your ass and do something about it so just mm. address it immediately and um and deal with it and and i think and personally for me and i'm sure you're the same tommy but yeah if uh if i walked out of covid and i didn't really achieve anything and someone had like gone out and done something really cool i would be really shitty at myself mm. i'd be like you know that's awesome they did that but why the fuck didn't i do it and there was nothing stopping me so yeah. I felt like, yeah, let's go and do something that I really want to do that's going to improve me or make me feel good. Yeah, for sure, mate. We'll sort of just um, talk about, so with with the health scare, obviously that's impacted you and the way you live your life now. I know for me personally, when after I had a tumour um, and I got through that, that really gives you some life experience. Like you sort of have to grow up a little bit quicker like even I still talk shit and, you know, muck around now. But I think at a young age, 17, 18, when I was going through school, instead of being a bit, um, I reckon earlier on, I was sort of thinking, oh, I want to get a job one day where I get paid a shitload of money. 
but then that just completely switched to I want to do something in my life that I enjoy because at the end of the day, like life can be taken away from you at any minute. So I think that really um, helped with my own understanding of what I want to do. So how, how did your uh, vision and health issues there, how did that impact you after you sort of got through it? I remember footy training one day, you came up and said some stuff to me and I really respected you in particular. All the boys were awesome. This is in 2012 and under 17s. But you, I respected you more when you were giving me advice about health because of what you had been through and you said some things about just um, like keep on pushing, mate, and, you know, have a crack like we all care and stuff. But I remember speaking to you at a separate time and that's what you said as well. Like you, you said, just go and do something that you're really passionate about. And um, and in saying that, I totally agree with you. Like you, both of us have had an experience where we potentially could have had everything taken away. And I'm not sure about you now, but me still, like I'm my eyesight has never fully recovered, and I can't go and do anything I want. And I can't like join the army or the air force or um, fire brigade because I've got an eyesight like visual impairment. So mm. not that I would probably either, but it definitely limits your opportunities. So I've also picked something that was really a passion of mine and where I could use my current skill set to um, to like do something that I really, really enjoyed. And I felt like that, yeah, imagine if I had that taken away from me, like that would really annoy me. So I just picked something I could make money in as well and just yeah. do what I could enjoy every day. And that was, that was uh, footy and sport. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah, I still have health issues now. Mainly, like, my vision's not great and um, sort of concentration levels aren't, aren't what they used to be. Um, yeah. But, that, but they were never too flash when I was at school anyway, so it's probably not an excuse. Um, but anyway, we'll sort of go <laughs> on to, <laughs> on to uh, yeah, what were your first steps? So with your vision now, what's that? Do you have a percentage-wise or, um, like, how good is that now? Can you Are you driving and stuff? Unfortunately, I'm not allowed to drive. Um, yep. Yeah. So I get around with like PTs and Ubers, living mail these days. So um, yep. it's easy and accessible for transport. But I don't have a percentage on my vision, unfortunately. Yep. Um, it's just got too hard to tell, like from um, dramatic improvement. So there's um, technically I'm legally blind, which is uh, a term that like they use for someone that could be fully blind or someone with like a major uh, visual impairment. Yeah. Um, so I'm at like the better end of that. I'm still legally blind, but I'm um I'm not fully blind. So I'm uh yeah I'm a I'm a part of um like I'm a, I'd be full under that term, and uh, I still have yeah like some major central vision issues today. But um because I I'm probably lucky in the aspect that I lost my sight at an older age because I got like some basic fundamental skills that other people with visual impairments um, don't have when they were born with them. Be it like mm. I have somewhat of hand-eye coordination. I have, I'm able to look people in the eye a bit more when they speak and things like that. So I find that I can, it almost like hides my impairment a fair bit more than what it really is due to um, having like some of those social skills, et cetera, just from being able to see. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's fine that that's something that, um, that really helps me out much more today. But yeah, my side now, it's, um, can't can't read a newspaper or a book. Uh, I have to use bigger font on my phone, but yep. um, I can still like see to. I sit a bit closer to the TV if I'm watching it or playing COD, you know, whatever. Yeah, um, 
yeah, but, and I have to enlarge screens, but that's pretty much where I'm at now. Um, day-to-day physical tasks, uh, most of the time, it doesn't affect me except for driving really is the major major impact on my life. Yep. Yeah, beautiful, mate. Well, that's uh, – well, you're still at a like, great uh, – you can basically do everything, mate. Driving's not all that's cracked up to be. I can't even drive for more than an hour and a half and my vision fucking butchers me, so. Yeah, right, yeah. Anyway, um, so we'll chat about now you've got through sort of that health scare. We'll go back to sort of when you're finishing school and you join a couple um, AFL coaching courses. Do you know to chat about that? Yeah, so, um, well, when I was in year 11, I was suffering my major most like um Toughest time in my, my eyesight, I had 3% and it stabilised like that for a while. And then through a year, end of year 11 and 12, it like improved. But uh, straight after year 12, I I was finding it, um, my eyesight was still slightly improving, but it wasn't where, um, I didn't wasn't confident enough to get a job uh, straight away. So I was just working out some farms and stuff, doing some things that um, in the area uh, that, I was um I was already a bit familiar with, which is handy, but I pretty much had to take like a year off. Um, I worked, a, I found a job where my sight improved a little bit more, where I was able to work, but I pretty much had to take a year off to be able to wait for my eyesight to improve a bit more, and that was like the final stages of my improvement um, then, and it hasn't really changed since. So after I um after that improved, I could choose a bit more about where I wanted to go in my life, and I joined a, um I went overseas and travelled for. a couple months and um and then i realized that like footy was my passion and that's what i wanted to do and i i signed up for an uh, uh program called the simon black academy uh, which is created by like simon black himself and i uh, worked under um sorry I, I was in a i was looking for an environment that i could be a part of when um with with the high like training loads um good skills good coaches good players around me but I was never good enough to be a part of like Benigo Pioneers or good footy, like even senior footy or shit out. So um, I, I wanted to be a part of that environment where I could absorb, um, like learn around that. And that was the closest thing I could get. So I signed up, went in this program and I studied a diploma of business and a certificate three and four in fitness and then trained footy four days a week down in Albert Park in um, Melbourne. And I uh, worked under Clinton Young. And I made a heap of really good networks from um, that program and uh, got my, I had my level one coaching accreditation from there. And I learned a lot about drills and skill acquisition and kicking, et cetera, because I was being coached at, um, at by these, these awesome coaches and former players. And then from there, that's where, uh, after I graduated my diploma, I was there for the year, the Simon Black Academy, Simon and Clinton were my references and, um, and Clinton Young actually offered me a job at Gisborne Footy Club a year later in the Benigo Footy League. So I worked under Clinton and um, we made the finals that year and um, got knocked out by Sandhurst. But that was an awesome experience under him. And I, through that experience of being under Clinton, I got my level two accreditation, um, the AFL for coaching. And I did, uh, well, so I signed up for a degree at, um, at Victoria University as well. Um, sports science and I was studying full time for a few weeks um, like for about six weeks and I thought what am I same thing as, as uh, what I was doing in sport what competitive advantage am I getting from doing this degree over anyone else that's doing it right now 
And I felt like no one, like I wasn't because everyone's just doing the same thing as me. So I took a risk and I went part-time at university and I had about, um, I had about four grand in the bank and I borrowed, um, $11,000 and I started my business was one thing I did. And then I also put another seven grand into education and I, I spent all my, like most of my money on educating myself and I did all these short courses about coaching and, um, skill acquisition, um, list management and recruiting, etc. And they were just short courses with the AFL, but that gave me a much bigger resume and shit on the resume just looks better. So yeah. I, uh, I had all these different certificates and I had all this, this, I didn't really have a niche. I stretched myself pretty thin, but because I had all of these qualif- like small qualifications, it just gave me like that point of difference that I was looking for. Yep. And then they, they, the courses I was in introduced me to a heap of different former players. And those were, those players were the ones that um, got me all of my jobs all the way up until I got into the AFL was um, from all the networking through the courses pretty much. And that was all thanks to, um, to Simon and Clinton pretty much from um, the, uh, the Simon Black Academy um, from there. That was like my introduction from my education into footy. Yeah, that's awesome, man. I think that's a really good uh, message for the people listening, any young kids out there that are sort of aspiring to do something. It's really important to invest in yourself. And you obviously invested in yourself, not just physically, but with your own coin out of your pocket. So, and I think that gave you those extra skills and stuff that opened up some more doors for you. Was that something you were thinking at the time, investing in yourself? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I definitely felt as if that uh, it was an investment in myself to be able to go where I wanted in my career. Like I was, I've always been in a rush to get to where I want to go. And it wasn't about – when I got into footy, it wasn't about proving people wrong anymore like it was with playing sport, I felt, or like just being as good as others and the way I was viewed upon um, by my friends and family and stuff, it was it was more just about like doing what I wanted to do, and that was that was my passion there. So, yeah, it was about personal development really. And I got it. I did this program called the Next Coach Program. And this one course in particular, it um go, went for ten weeks, one night a week, um on like uh, Zoom, and um we would uh, uh there would be all these different coaches and players in the room. A lot of them were current AFL players like Brennan Goddard, Luke Shuey. Um, and there's a few former players, David Wojcinski, et cetera. And it was run by this guy called David Whedon and Ron Watt. Um, but David was the main conductor of the course and where he worked, he, um, he runs it for the AFL Coaches Association. And I'd, I'd applied a couple of times to get into this course and I never got in, but if you don't ask, you don't get. So I applied, uh, I think it was the second or third time, and um, and I offered me a spot and took a fair chunk out of my um, my bank account, but that's what I used part of this loan for. And the it the course covered about 10 or, 10 or no, it was 12 different topics of um, about coaching and football programs and sporting programs. And the information I learned was unreal because I'd been reading David's books for years. He's an author and he has a great book called The Art of Coaching, which I 
always wanted to meet him and talk to him about it. So that's why I enrolled in this course. And uh, from there, I, after I finished the course, David and I met up and had a heap of coffees, and we went to this um, to this little cafe um, in Kensington um, every sort of six weeks. And he um, he introduced me to Ben Rutten, who's now the uh, succession coach at Essendon. Um, so for John Worsfold's successor. So I've um, that's what that really opened the door f- from um, for me. And that was an unreal way to get into the AFL. And that was the best piece of personal development I probably ever have done um, was, was that one program in particular. Yeah, awesome. What was that called, that course? That was... Um, the Next Coach Program. The Next Coach Program. Right, yeah. 10 weeks on Zoom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can do a three-day intensive now, but um, it was like, yeah, 10 weeks on Zoom, just... Um, and they just go over the topics with you. It was unreal. But like some of the people you meet in there, like I met Jordan Lewis out of it. Um, he was unreal, really fascinating um, guy to talk like, sort of life and footy with. But yeah, there's a heap of really cool people in there that were, um, yeah, awesome footy brains and good people. Yeah, and I think that's really important to put yourself out there as well. Because with these, with these jobs, like a lot of the time, it is who you know. Like obviously you've got all the skills um in the world but if you don't have these contacts it makes it a lot harder to um, be accessible for these sort of job positions coming up so i think networking is just absolutely massive for anyone that's looking to get into a certain field it's important to talk to those people in that field that's where you get a real sense of you know what's going on and how to sort of get there yourself yeah a couple rules i have with networking is uh and i totally agree with you what you're saying there tommy I always find that when I network, I uh, I target them with a per, like a person with a purpose. So David had a great book, really wanted to read it. It was fascinating. I thought he was one of the most edu- um, intelligent men in sport that I'd um, sort of ever heard of. So he was one guy, like bang, wanted to meet him. And, um, and same with Ben Rutten, up and coming guy, very good player interesting person when you hear about him speaking um just come out of richmond when they had won a flag so he was another guy like a targeted to to meet and then valuing the relationship like don't just go there to get what you want out of them like you've got to really show that you care and um and you you value their opinion and a way i've always done it is by like saying look i really value about like what you say and i would love your advice about like where i can go in my career because people like helping people and people like to be heard so when you ask for someone's opinion it makes them feel good because you clearly value and respect them um so that's another rule i have and um so like you target who you really want to talk to and then um make sure you you really value them as a person and that relationship you have and then the other part of it is when you build that relationship and you get on with them really well is get a really good reference because when you read a resume, what's the last thing that you look at at the bottom of the resume? What do you think it is? Yeah, yeah, your three or five references, whatever the number is. Exactly. So that's the last thing that they see. And if you have a really good references, that will help you get the job because people want to talk to a, like a, you know, a former AFL player, for example. So I had, um, David on there, who was really well known through the industry, but I've had Ben Rutten on there. I've had Simon Black, um, Clinton Young. Like I've had some um, astounding people, like really good 
um, mentors of mine over the years and guys I still have like good relationships with today and they were the thing the people that really like got me the job and it's all about who you know and like how you do your networking I find that like there were some rules I followed and um and that's what really progressed me in my career I felt yeah that's great mate um so we'll talk a, a little bit about so you land the job at Essendon is it what's the role tactician uh, no, not quite. So I was a football analyst, but pretty yep. much that was my job. I did the opposition analysis um, there and a little, I did some assistance with the skill acquisition um, coaching there too. Yep. We'll quickly just touch on as well. So you got the job at Essendon um, uh-huh. the end of last year, was it? Yes. Yeah. In November. Yep. 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 Do you want to quickly run us through? Obviously you didn't get that first go. I sort of had a ch- bit of a chat to you the other day about it, but how did... um that opportunity open up and yeah how did you get in there yeah so of um that was through ben um so when ben was at richmond in the end of 2017 he uh him and i had a coffee in richmond and met for the first time and uh we spoke about like sort of where i was going and he got me in contact with tim livingstone who's um who's the general manager of um, footy at Richmond now, but he was the um, the director of coaching at the time. And he gave me some um, a great insight and I got to go into Richmond Footy Club and have a meeting with him. And it was just me randomly shooting an email from Ben. And uh, and then he gave me all this great feedback as well. So like Tim was, um, was unreal there. And then Ben actually jumped across to Essen at the end of uh, 2017 and he was at Essendon for the 2018 season as an assistant coach. Um, and Ben actually got me in a job interview and he hardly knew me, but at that, at that point in time, but he just really thought I had some um, good potential. And I went for a job interview and I was, I was in the interview with a guy called Rob Harding, who's a really experienced um, strategist in the AFL and, uh, and tactician and really cool guy. And, um, yeah, very inter- interesting guy to talk to. And I was blown away, to be honest, in the interview. Like, I had no idea about the type of stuff that they were doing at the AFL. And it was such an awesome insight. And that was as close as I'd ever been to an AFL involved this one interview because they show you about what the role has and what you got to do. Um, and I was going to be doing the opposition analysis if I got a job. And then I actually got to the last seven and got cut. So I didn't even make it far. But yep. um, I took down everything that Rob said and Ben had also told me from the interview and they thought that I had some real promise and I did everything I possibly could to uh, improve myself that next 12 months and I continued studying part-time at uni, did some more education. I was working at the Western Bulldogs um, VFL and AFLW program and then I um, I got into, uh, I always had a feeling that Essendon were going to um, come knocking just because Ben was such an awesome guy and um, and we got on really well. And then Ben and I kept staying in touch throughout the year and Ben said, um, come in for an interview. So I went into um I went into uh there and, and I um had this interview and I gave it everything I had and we were playing our grand final that week for the Western Bulldogs in the VFLW. Um, and I was trying to prepare for that, prepare for the job interview and prepare for the Bulldogs after party. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and and we we unfortunately lost the granny, but um, I was like, couldn't really have too many beers and stuff because I was uh, waiting for a phone call from like Ben, 
and uh, anyone at the club, um, just about any advice I might have for the, the interview and stuff. And uh, I was just keeping my head on my shoulders because I sort of hadn't finished my presentation. And, um, I was doing it on the bus on the way to the game and everything. And then, yeah, right. Yeah, it was like pretty intense few days. And then the, the Monday, um, I had the the um, the interview and presented um, like what I thought. I had to analyse the list and the game plan. Um, that's what I had to do the interview and um, of, of what Essendon had. And I got the job. Um, it was a nervous wait for four weeks, but I got offered the job. So I started there and I couldn't believe um, like some of the names we had. We had Mark Harvey, James Kelly, um, Luke Ball was there. But we had some really other interesting people that weren't as well known, but like, um, yeah, Cam Roberts. Um, Blake Carousel is a really well-known person that was there, but... Um, yeah, a few other guys, Mark Corrigan, and they were awesome, these these other coaches, lead shooter and stuff. And um, I learned so much off them in a short amount of time. Like I felt like I was capable of level when I walked in and then when I walked out, I just felt like I learned so much more and I still had so much to learn. But, yeah, my role was to um, analyse common trends and game plans of, um, of opposition sides and then try and uh, create a strategy um, that's going to provide our side with a winning formula. So that was my job every week. Yeah, so how did, how did that work day to day? So what was the, how did the day in the life of an analyst, how did that work? Because um, I'm sure the listeners would have a fairly different view of what it was to what it actually is. So yeah, what so did you yeah. do on a day to day, man? So like day to day, you um, would train like every day at the club. Um, depending on what type of training would have, whether it be like a heavy day or light day. So I would all filming a training um, and filming the training session. And uh, we would then like put it all together in a package, which is um, like we'd film the training session from a few different angles. So we'd put all the angles into one video, like the training, and then give that to the coaches so they can go over and analyze whatever feedback they need to give to the players. And then would prepare for a lot of meetings with the players about the game plan. So we might be like going over stoppages, for example. So my job was to get the stoppages, um, like go over that with Mark Harvey and analyse our stoppage structures and what opposition sides do a bit, etc. And then try and create a strategy with Mark about how we're going to go ahead with our stoppages um, for like, you know, for the upcoming season. So we would always have meetings about that, but I would assist with the defence and the forwards and, you know, everywhere else. Um, there's a lot of little other tasks that um, are just other things you got to tick off from like um, uh, other point of view with assisting the coaches and help presentations and things. But um, the other bulk of the work was to analyse the other teams about what they're doing. So in the competition in the preseason, so we wouldn't watch them train, but we would watch their previous season and uh, if they had the same coach and try and pick apart about like what type of um of game plan they're going to have and would do some practice opposition analysis reports and um, and prepare for getting our structure right for the reports for the upcoming season. So we'd present that to the coaches and the, and uh, they would tell us, you know, what they what they want more of, what, what they want less of, um, what, they, what they think is a really good amount. And then we'd also use statistics to help um, analyse the game. So we'd watch it from video from a few different angles and like behind the goals and on side on, and then would go, all right, I think they're switching the ball um, a lot. I think that's what they're trying to do from the back line. And then our stats analyst would um, 
would come in and say, yep, they switch a heap. This is what the data indicates. So then we come together and go, oh, that's something that they do on attack. So we're going to put that on. Okay. Um, yeah. how, how big was your team of um, analytics? What's that, sorry? How many people were you working alongside with the analytics of it? Was there a few? Uh, there's just three of us. I think most clubs have more. Um, we had a bit of a different structure, but yeah, there's three of us. Um, one of the like so Demis, this guy, he was a more of a statistical analyst, um, and then another guy um, was the head analyst, and he is really experienced. Um, he's like not a, he's not a coach, but he's just been at the AFL for a, a long time, and he's really good at identifying. Uh, opposition trends and he was awesome to learn off um and then there was me and i sort of assisted both of them but more um more the head analyst yeah yeah right so essentially your job was to get as much information as the uh the opposition teams as you could put it in a you know easy to read format and give it to the coaches and then the coaches sort of try and pick apart uh what they're going to focus on for the game and then give that to the players is that sort of how it worked yeah, pretty much. Um, so they would, they'd uh, figure out like, all right, this is what they do. That was our job. Uh, point it out and show where we can exploit them. Then the coaches figure out how they're going to exploit them, if they're going to go with our recommendations or their own, um, with their own opinions. And then they would go and present that to the players um, about how they're going to um, exploit the opposition, how they're going to um, defend against them. And uh, they do like, have meetings around that throughout the week and then you just train um, as well yeah beautiful because it'd be it'd be pretty hard as a coach because there's two there's two sort of um, facets that we're talking about there so you can focus on what the opposition's doing but I'm sure coaches don't want to focus too much on what the opposition's doing because then it takes away from your own game plan so there's obviously some sort of balance there between you want to implement your own game plan but stop them from using their weapons is that sort of another way of looking at it yeah, for sure. I think where a lot of uh, local football coaches get lost about this is you've got to create um, an attack and a defence for uh, multiple scenarios. So if you create a really good defence that stops most sides um, really well and it's an effective and you train that all the time, then it's going to work. So that means that you don't have to uh, train something brand new to be able to stop the opposition. You just train the way you defend that stops most sides. So... Let's say they're a fast-running team. You want to be able to come up with a game plan that um, stops teams moving the ball quickly because every team is going to try and move the ball quickly at some stage in the game. And so say Richmond, something like that, like really yeah. small mosquito fleet, get the ball moving. Yeah, exactly. They're fast, super fast at moving the ball. So um, you want to be able to like come up with a formula that can defend that. But then you've got a team like Geelong who move the ball really slow. Collingwood move the ball slow. Um, Freo do as well in the defensive half. So you've got to be able to find a formula that, to be able to um, to stop both both types of attack. And that's where, as a AFL side, every team's the same. They all come up with a way to be able to stop multiple styles of attack and also multiple styles styles of defence. And then you go out and just train um, both styles that week of training and predominantly try and train to how the opposition is going to play against you. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So you're not really getting tied up and lost in uh, what they're trying to do. Yeah. Another question I was going to ask as well, you had a, like a year or two at Gisborne, you coached a bit of AFL 
W, what sort of similarities, because um, it's all a game of football at the end of the day, what similarities did you really notice between the uh, AFL and other um, levels of football, um, including uh, local league? I think um, I think at local level, the there's a few AFL guys running around and they're clearly dominant stuff. But I reckon that the um, the similarities between them all is that long long kicks like down the line that happens at all um, at, at all levels. I think that fast generally playing fast wins you most games as well. Um, like speed disrupts defenses, so. I think that makes defenses panic. I found that was like a really common, um, like a common and similar trend. I found that um, if you win the contested possession um, and you're able to like use the ball from there, you'd always win the game. Like basic stuff that you'd expect most of the time. I found that they were like the common similarities, but I found that each level also had some major differences as well um, about the way the game was played. Yeah, for sure. What differences was that? There's obviously a massive difference in professionalism and AFL players doing it as a full-time job, but what other things um, did you notice? So I think that at local level, stoppages are really undercoached and the way you set up at stoppage can be the way you set up your attack and your defence. And I think that AFL teams are really strong about the way they set up at stoppage and that generates that that attack or that defence for them um, to help them win the back of the ball or to score. And they, they start from there, and that's like the source of the game, essentially, because um, that's the contest. So how are you going to win the ball to do that? As at local footy, they just sort of coach like um, more about uh, what they do when their other team has the ball and what you do when you have the ball. They don't really go into stoppages that much and analyse the structure. Um so I found that like that was a major difference in between both levels is the score generally comes from stoppage um, at AFL because they like um, spend so much time about setting up for that as a local. It's just more about like win back the ball and then we'll play the game and go our way from there. Um, and it doesn't generally occur at stoppage. And then the women's was different again because the game is so contested. So you... um. They they try to condense the area and uh, make the the team the team with the best skills will win at women's footy, but so they condense it and try and make it like hard to be able to move the ball and and you can't execute skills you don't have much time so all three games were quite different because um at stoppage you might need to really spread apart mm-hmm. and you know have guys down the line um uh, uh, in the AFL and then the men's like local footy is more quick ball movement if you can switch it etc. And um, and then your your uh, women's footy is more condensed, so it's like quite different. More tackles, more contested possession, more rush disposal, not as clean skills. So that I found those were like the major differences between all of. Yeah, righto. So with um, I was just thinking about local footy. I'm a big supporter of Eagle Hawk. I've obviously got Sam and Sizzle, like brother and. Um... Yeah, Great one of his good mates that, yeah, like they're basically both brothers to me. But Sam's sort of a bit of a spoiler alert, but one of the sort of tactics that Eagle Hawk use, which has been really successful in the Bendigo League, is their first kick out of defence, especially if one of their half-back flankers have it in their defensive 50, they're always looking for that 45-degree kick quickly into the middle, and then they can open up from there rather than going, you know, waiting 30 seconds and kicking... Long down the line, they're always looking for that little kick in the middle. 
Um, what sort of things do they sort of talk about um, at Essendon? I don't know whether you're allowed to sort of tell us a few different tactics or things that they focus on. Yeah, I I, I could, but I won't just to keep yeah, it yeah. it's good. But what yeah. I will what I will tell you is my own philosophy. So this is applies across at all AFL clubs. So this isn't just Essendon. We didn't train this um, all the time, but like same principles apply. So when you get the ball, yeah, say you're at halfback. Yep. As a player, um, you need to be able to move the ball as quick as you can, um, ideally, because speed disrupts defences. So, um, depending on the way you play, though, but the first look should be corridor because the corridor is the fastest way to go. And then the second look should be a switch because that's the second fastest way to go. Like, switch it around your back line, open up the fat side of the ground, move it down there, hopefully get a 50 um, or a shot. Next one would be um, kicking short down the line and uh, just maintaining possession and then long down the line to the contest where you might break even and get a stoppage. So I think like a lot of AFL teams do that. And we used to train that at Gisborne um, all the time under Clinton Young. And that's a really good um, principle to have where you think about the process. When you mark the ball, you go corridor switch, short, long. And that's like what you should train with the way you swivel your head. And yep. all AFL teams do that because um, that's a really good form of decision-making training. You take, you look at the fastest way to score and then oh, take the option that. available so you can try and do that. Right, so similar to Eagle Hawk, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so having a process in your head. So that that's something a lot of um, people wouldn't even think about, like having those four options in your head straight away rather than just getting the ball and obliviously <laughs> looking around. I reckon that's what I used to do when I used to mark the footy in the back line. Have no Mate. fucking idea where it's going next, but um, I suppose that's the that's the difference, isn't it? Oh, I find like fuck guys are stupid, and I see all the time where it frustrates me as a coach. Like you, you get the ball, they look at the corridor, and then they just go, "No, nah, it's not on." They don't even look for switch unless they're told to. They just they just kick along down the line. Yeah, like. Fuck, mate, you know, look, 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 look four times, maybe look in the corridor again, see if it opens up and then go. But um, try and, um, yeah, try and break the game open. And uh, they're, they're like little advantages that can, um, if you if every player does that when they get the ball, they, especially off a mark, that will open up the game for sure and you will score so many more times. I think it's a major difference in um, the difference between good sides and bad sides. Like Strathstorm, uh one of the best sides under Daryl Wilson. I worked there for a little bit and um, learned a bit off him when I was just coming up through the ranks. And they didn't train this, but they were always really good at it. Yeah. Yeah, hello? Sorry, mate, you there? Hey, you're all right. All oh, good. I had a random phone call. Um, yeah, hey, right. I, I always find that, um, that, that, is, that was a major differential between Strath and the other Bendigo sides was the way they swiveled their head to make better decisions so they could move the ball faster. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got just maybe two or three questions to finish off. So the first one, Spice, is really big into his um, exercise physiology and how the human body uh, moves and what happens when you're fatigued. So he wanted to know, how do the players hold on to all of this information as the game goes on? into the third and fourth quarter? Or do you sort of, as, as the coach, do you have to simplify it um, even more? Yeah, thinking so, about all these tactics when they're fucking rooted is pretty, pretty hard. So how do you combat that, mate? Well, I find that 
a lot of teams, um, and this is where my, my business really, um, this is what I provide. And so this is what skill acquisition is, again, is where you train the way you want to play. Um, so if you put yourself in more situations that you're going to face in a game or a training, then your players will be able to make better decisions, remember good information to be able to help you create an advantage to win the game. And if you go out and just train lane work kicking, bow tie kick, Oranges. fucking three-man weave, it doesn't really simulate the game. It's a shit way to train. <laughs> um, and, like, there's no decision-making elements really oh. to it, um, especially uh, only in three-man weave. But the other two, you don't have decision-making element. So if, you, if you're cooked... Mm -hmm. Sorry, mate, you there? No, you're right. Yep, yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, so if you're cooked, uh, you need to um, you need to be able to look at, like, the way you train and then think about the game plan that you have and try and come up with a better training method, especially as a senior coach, this is what they should be doing. Come up with a better training method that will be able to in a way that your team makes decisions on game day. So players will, yeah, clearly forget information if they haven't trained it. But I find if you train it more often... Put them in that more of those match-like scenarios, then they will um, then they will be able to make better decisions when they're cooked. Uh, a common error of teams that lose games and people that forget information is just because they haven't done it. Like you always remember something more when you do it more. Yeah, of course, mate. I think that's a like a really simple but effective way um, of looking at it. Because yeah, like I know for like we play as Connor and. Um, Speak and I, we play like just local level level soccer, and yeah, you do find as you get fatigued and stuff, your skills and stuff sort of um, aren't quite up to the same standard. But the more you do train it at training, the easier it becomes on game day. And I think that's one of Connor's sort of things as well, like you know, train how you play. So I think that's another uh, really interesting facet of the game. Yeah, your training how you play is important, but I think that a lot of coaches don't have a great sense of being able to make. Um, really good drills and they need someone to come in there and support it. like they're great at other things um, but yeah yeah if you can come up with really good ways and drills um, and scenarios be able to train a training that simulate the game you're always going to make those better decisions as, and that's in any sport that's not just footy like same in bloody cricket and soccer anything you do just don't don't do match sim just break it down create a scenario that you're going to face commonly in a game yeah for sure mate so we'll finish off with um, two quick little fun questions and then we'll sort of touch on what your uh, aspirations are for the future. So the, first one, the first one is who is the best player you've seen in your lifetime in the AFL and why? Uh, oh, it's so a hard, hard one. Yeah, yep. it's so hard. Um, someone that I've personally always loved watching is Sam Mitchell. Um, mm. he, I found that he was so influential uh, he's like Hawthorne didn't win a th didn't win three flags um, for nothing, and I felt like he was the guy really set up that um, that era. And I don't know why he's underrated and gets um, not very like he's not recognised all the time as one of the greats, uh, I believe. But like guy kicks off both sides, um, has like dynamic handballs and kicks, really good in candy and traffic and evasion. Um, so he's he's one that I find. It, as a player, if you can sell candy, so when I was losing my life, this is an advantage I created. I was fumbly and I wouldn't be able to see the ball. So when I did get it, I wasn't going to have much time because I hadn't seen the ball coming for as long as others. So yeah. I had to be able to sell candy 
to be able to create an advantage for me to be make more so I could have more time to make better decisions. So same as Sam Mitchell, he was not quick. So he added candy. Scott Pendlebury is the same. They add candy to their game and they can get use evasion to get through traffic to be able to make better decisions. Um, so they have more time to make better decisions. And I find that that and then they that allows for someone else to get into space because it draws players to you. So. I found that um, Sam Mitchell was like one of the most influential players because Hawthorne would always have these free guys and get uncontested marks because guys like Sam Mitchell could just draw plays in and then spit the ball out to someone and be really effective with it off both sides of the body. And then that would make them one of the best scoring sides in attack ever to play the game. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Like um, selling candy in AFL footy, that's one of my favourite things to watch. Like that's just so unique and special to the game, because um, obviously it's a three sixty game where you can get tackled from anywhere. So if you can sell the candy and buy yourself an extra two meters, it's huge. And I found with Sam Mitchell as well, a thing that I always think about is he wasn't one of these freak athletes that are getting drafted today. Um, he was just a footballer's footballer. Like he just had a great footy head, and he knew how to manipulate his body in space. Yeah, and also the skills, which were absolutely elite. He's amazing. He uh, he wrote a book called Relentless, and um, it's a really good read uh, if you want to uh, read something about like sport and um, having an analytical mindset. He was terrific. But, yeah, I definitely find him um, definitely the most influential player. And then the other guy, it's going off topic, sorry, but uh, Dustin yeah. Martin, I just find that he mm. is a guy that's not as consistent as Sam, but he is so dominant. And I reckon that, um, Dustin probably had the best individual season of anyone ever in 2017. And um, and I reckon that, like, he's another guy that really stands out. Um, there's a few other players that really come to mind, but I find Sam's influence and Martin's dominance are two of the guys in the modern game that I really admire. I love their games. Yeah. Yeah, Martin's an absolute marvel to watch. And luckily I'm a Richmond supporter, so I've enjoyed every second of the last <laughs> sort of three years, which is... Being great, the old don't find argue. A guy, yeah, find a guy that um, dominates in three positions like he does. And even Sam was the same, halfback and, um, and and midfield as well. But, like, yeah, find guys that can dominate and do what they do in multiple positions. They're pretty hard to stop. Yeah, for sure, mate. And the other question would be, so I'm sure you've looked into sort of the past era of AFL. So if you could pick, or VFL, if you could pick anyone who's ever played the game, who's one player you'd love to see play live, from the past AFL, VFL era. So who's oh. one guy you've heard about or seen footage of that you've just thought, geez, I'd love to see him play live? I've, um, these guys are probably a bit recent, uh, but like I didn't see much of them. Um, but Wayne Carey and Andrew McLeod, two guys that um, really come to mind, and, and they didn't re- probably retire that long ago, but they were before my time. Like I never really saw them, and they're guys that always come up in conversations that, wherever I've been, two, two common guys. But, um, yeah, Lee Matthews and, you know, Johnny Platten or someone would be pretty awesome to see, I reckon, as well. Yeah, mainly um, I reckon the big, yeah, the duck would be awesome. Yeah, a lot of people regard him as the GOAT. Um, yeah. But sort of saw, seen him play, like I've seen some footage and he's just jumping on blokes' heads, like his athleticism and kicking ability, kick the footy, you know, 60 metres. Um, yeah, he was just a marvel. Would have been good to see him play today. Yeah, super. He's um, I, I know about his uh reputation, but I personally have met uh, Wayne Carey on a number of occasions through footy. Um, 
at a gym that I used to train at and I didn't get to know him that well personally, but he was always there and I found he was a really good bloke and he is one of the most fascinating insights I personally have on um, on a former player that works in the media. Whenever I listen to his um, like his podcasts and his interviews and talkback shows, etc., I find he has really good opinions. Yeah, Matthew Lloyd's another it's pretty interesting one too, but I find that generally what they talk about, they're right compared to some of the other guys that are going around, I reckon. Yeah, for sure. You there, mate? Yeah, mate. Gotcha. Yep. yep. Yeah, yeah. No, I'd agree. I don't want to badmouth anyone, but there's a few blokes in the in the media that haven't played at a high level of footy or they, they look like they've never kicked a footy in their life and they, uh, yeah, they like to berate the... The players and pick their game apart, but but this um this podcast isn't to name those names. So yeah, yeah, I no, think, exactly. I think you've got a few on your head, but anyway, but yeah, keep it positive. No, exactly right. Yeah, I think that like most guys in there as well just have to that for a job. Um, yeah, yeah. Like Kane Corns always comes up as a common person that um that like is criticised, and you know I don't always like you're not always going to like things that people say but like what i reckon what sometimes what kane says is really good so you know there's always people like that out there yeah yeah absolutely and the last thing mate we'll just um go through what's your aspirations for the future um what are you doing right now and yeah what what do you hope this leads to for you i've um i'm coaching uh i'm the director of coaching at old scotch um so scotch college and um but the old scotch so all the former students in the school but they play the local for the local footy side now um so worked there as director of coaching um in the vafa the premier division and um i'm like still consulting with my business do a little bit of casual work for afl victoria um on the rare occasion mainly based in afl goldfields which is the ballarat area as a yep. regional coaching um developer and with another guy and um that's about it just at uni as well like plugging away there so start back there in june and that's really it and hopefully i get another opportunity in the next few years in the afl um if that's not meant to be like i'm very content with uh, what i've achieved to date and considering my circumstances but i'm also pretty hungry to go and put my skill set into a new environment as well and um and really put it to work and see what i've got to so yeah, it's um, all of this IP I've been writing up for a number of weeks since I lost my job. It's, um, I really want to see what it's like in the, you know, whether it's in my own side, at local level, or it's in an assist again. Yeah, it'd be awesome. That That's sort of where I'm at. Yeah, beautiful, mate. And have you ever thought about transitioning into another sport, say cricket in the future? Do you think that's not out of the realm of possibility? Yeah, I probably wouldn't go back to cricket. I think that uh, my my passion for cricket's probably gone a bit, and I, I find footy easy to see as a coach, but I can't find um, cricket like as easy to be able to watch it with my eyesight. Um, yep. So I, I couldn't see myself transferring to cricket, but I do watch a lot of other sports. So for other coaches out there, I find that. Um, whenever you watch another sport that has scoring at end to end, so basketball, soccer, etc., you can always get things out of their um, their game plans and the way they move the ball and defend, etc. So I'm I tend to watch a lot of uh, soccer um, at the moment, and um, I really like the way that um, 
like soccer is not the greatest game to watch, but to analyse it is. And uh, I find that that's pretty interesting. So if I was going to cross over, that would be something. But I, I really like the way people do stuff um, in regards to their training. So like the way teams train. And I've been recently putting together some studies about uh, the military and the way they train and um, how much decision-making and uh, simulation of the environment that they're going to face on a mission is compared to like the way they train. And I find that really interesting. So that's skill acquisition again is uh, training the way that you're going to play or the, the environment you're going to be faced in combat. So I'd see myself, not that I'm going to get a job in the army, but I, I, love, I find that really fascinating. And I'm not sure where that would be, but I'd love to go somewhere potentially down that. Wasn't interesting is, um, is analysing um, organisations train and trying to in, improve that. Yeah, for sure, mate. That's yeah, super interesting. And yeah, like I'm sure the way you're going at the minute, mate, you'll have plenty more opportunities pop up in the future. It's just a testing time for everyone at the minute with the COVID. Um, but we'll finish up there. Thanks a lot for having you on, mate. It's been a yeah, fascinating insight into sort of the way you've got through certain hurdles and um, yeah, what you're doing today. It's awesome, mate. No, thanks, Tommy. Yeah, really appreciate it, mate. Any time and uh, thanks for having me on the podcast um to the other guys and yeah loved every moment of it It was awesome beautiful no worries mate thank you thanks for listening to the blokes in your ear you can check us out on facebook and our page the blokes in your ear also check out our instagram and twitter using the tag at blokes in your ear thanks again for listening and we'll be back with another podcast soon